Now, you are welcome to keep your eyes closed if you'd like for a moment. Um, but I would like to ask you, have you ever been swept up at a moment of worship, encountering a glory that you cannot describe or contain? Have you ever been in the room when God showed up dangerously, but you felt safe because you knew that you were loved? Or perhaps God showed up dangerously and you did not feel safe. Some time back while I was in college, I was at a concert with a friend who's in the room. And we like eclectic music. And I like to know the words that are being sung. And so I especially like songs that tell stories. And if I'm learning a story and learning more about the artist, I want to know more about the artist. And this is an artist who at the time was a self-professed um, Catholic atheist who did not believe in God, but was a practicing Catholic because of his childhood. And so as a self-professed Catholic atheist, there's a room full, um, and we're in this place that's a bar, and so um, there, there's, uh, there's alcohol flowing, and there is the smell of other drugs that we won't name. Um, and so and that's just kind of the environment that I'm in in this moment, and it's crowded, like you cannot move, like you're shoulder to shoulder with everybody and focused on the stage, and, you know, there's the, there's the kind of, like, lesser band that starts off and everything, and there's the quiet change out. And, and then the band that we're there to see, um, led by this singer, comes up, and they say nothing, but then they finally start the instrumentation. As the instrumentation starts, the lights in the whole room dim to very, very low. And then there's just this shimmering light that's dancing off of everything. And it starts very low as the room is quiet, and it becomes slowly this deafening roar as this keyboard plays what sounds like a massive pipe organ that you would hear in a cathedral. And it's deafening, it's like shaking the room. And it builds to this crescendo, and then the lead singer starts belting out these vocals. There's an old song of worship. And the room full of people who largely relate to this man who says he does not believe in God, as he starts to sing out, let's be honest, in a blasphemous way, the praises of our king. The room is moved and lifting hands and singing together. But you look around and there's these kind of jeering smiles. Almost like, give it to him. And as I stood in that moment, it was one of the most profound moments of worship in my life. As I felt this dangerous God come into the room and all I could think was, you will get your glory one way or another. Even as they think that they mock you, like it or not, this is truly going accord to God's plan. And he will be glorified in a room of people trying to celebrate atheism in a way that would mock the God of the cosmos. God shows up and I feel safe in the presence of a dangerous being who could decimate everything and everyone. And yet to know I'm his and he will be glorified. In moments when it seems like he is not, he will be. But now you have to ask the question, and I have to ask the question, is this really going according to plan? If I can make the statement that everything is really going according to God's plan, that he will be glorified, is everything actually going according to plan? Is the world around you going according to God's plan? Look around. Is this what God wants? Or maybe don't look around, maybe look in in your home, in your job, in your marriage, your relationship with whoever it is that comes to mind right now? 
Is this really going according to God's plan? Is this what he wants? Is he present? Where is this God you say is so dangerous? Or is he absent? Is he just gone? Is it this ancient clockmaker who made something intricate and wound it up and then said, yeah, have at it. We'll see how it ends. And he's just watching. Is that what this story is? Is we have to take that tension into the book of Esther because I, I opened this series and then Reggie and Chris have brought us forward in this and we, and we started with acknowledging that God is not mentioned in this whole book. And that's pretty wild to think that there's a book of the Bible, God's word, he breathed this out, inspired by God, the divine, and yet through human authors, and yet there's a book included in this that does not mention God. And we're gonna spend a month in that book? Is God not present in that book? And so as we, we now have to come to grips with our own reality that sometimes that feels like our life. That we can say we believe in God and say he's always present, there's nowhere we can go to escape him, and yet where is he? Is he actually here? Is this really going according to plan? And so if you've been tracking with us, or um, perhaps like me, you went on vacation, you've missed some of this, um, to bring you up to where we are, we're gonna be in Esther chapter five. Um, so you can make your copy of scripture ready. Esther chapter five, and while you're turning there, um, to summarize what has happened is the book of Esther is a book that starts in um, the, the Persian Empire. And so you have who we largely in our world history refer to as King Xerxes, but King Ahasuerus um, is king. He's the third in this dynasty. And so as this guy is in power, um, he starts off his third year of reign and he's just like showing off. He has a 180-day festival feast and it's just a long party like, hey, open bar, have what you want. We're not holding back anything. And so they have this massive thing. Um, the queen, Vashti, um, his queen, is told towards the end of it that he wants her to come wearing her crown and the kids are no longer in the room largely. Um, that's what he wanted, was her in a crown. And he wanted to parade her in front of others. He wanted to commodify her, to make her into an object. She is nothing more than her sexual prowess. And so come parade that in front of us. Let's show off. And she, to her credit, says, no. And so now he's angry. An edict is written up that basically exiles her internally. She can be in the kingdom, but she can never be in the presence of the king. She has been stripped of her title, her crown. She is no longer the queen. And they come up with this plan. We're going to find a replacement. There's going to be this beauty pageant. We're going to find the most beautiful virgin in all the land. And so they bring together tons and tons of young women virgins bring them into these harems where they have six month treatments of perfumes and oils and things try to get them as pretty as possible and then one per night will be paraded in front of the king he'll have his way with her and decide whether or not she gets another chance and so we're years into this when esther is a young Jewish girl who already, her life is marked by tragedy. She's an orphan. She has lost her mother and father and her older cousin, Mordecai, has decided, I will take care of you. He adopts her. And Mordecai knows, um, scripture actually says she has a beautiful figure. She's got curves in all the right places. She's very attractive. And so he knows she has a chance. She is drafted into this beauty pageant and so he's kind of staying close by so he can kind of keep tabs on her, what's going on and everything. She gets her chance to be before the king and the king loves her. He says, she's the one, she gets the crown, she wins the beauty pageant, she is now queen. And so now you have a Jew who is not disclosed that she is a Jew and she is now the queen. And then you fast forward a little bit of time, Mordecai liked to hang out at the gate 
And he's at the gate when he hears two of the eunuchs, the guards of the king, who are plotting the assassination of the king. And so Mordecai tells Esther, his cousin that he adopted, he's like, hey, these two dudes are gonna try to kill the king. And so Esther tells the king, hey, there's about to be an assassination attempt. My, my friend Mordecai, he told me about it. And so the king avoids the assassination, but then kind of forgets about that whole thing. They kill the two guys who are going to be the would-be assassins. And so um, Haman comes along, who's a nobleman, and he rises up the second in command. And so now you've got Haman has entered the story. He hates Mordecai because Haman, in all his pomp and circumstance, he wants people to bow before him, to honor him. And Mordecai the Jew is there, and he will not do such. And so Haman says, you Jew, I hate all the Jews. And so he decides, I'm gonna go to the king with this plan. We're gonna make a lot of bank off this. Hey, king, can you issue an idiot that will be pronounced in every language of the kingdom? And we're gonna have this one day where we're gonna fill the coffers because what we're gonna do is we're gonna exterminate. It's gonna be genocide. We're gonna kill all of the Jews on this particular day and we're gonna plunder all the spoils. So imagine that. We lose this small race of humans and we're compensated with all of what they own. This is gonna be a great day. And he's doing it because he hates this one guy, Mordecai, that much because he will not bow to him. There's a little bit of a pride problem here. And so now we fast forward. Mordecai hears about this as Esther is brought into this. You know, Chris brought us up last week with, there's this moment where Mordecai's like, Esther, you gotta remember, you're a Jew. Don't think that this will escape you. They're going to kill all of us. And so maybe this is why you were brought to this position. Will you petition the king? And Esther's like, you know what happens if you show up and you try to talk to the king without a welcome? He can kill you. It's against the law. So your only hope is that he has pity on you when you show up without an invitation and he extends that golden scepter towards you. And then you get to live and stay in his presence. So she takes the chance. She's willing to do that, but they fast. She asks for all the Jews to fast, and then she's going to go, and she's going to show up before the king. He extends the scepter. She is safe, and she gets to make her request. And you know what she does? She invites him to a banquet. I made lunch. And so the king and Haman, his second in command, the one who made this whole orchestrated plot to kill all the Jews, are invited to lunch with her. And while they're at lunch, the king asks, hey, anything you want us to do? Like, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. What would you like? She clearly has favor in his eyes. And she's like, here's the thing. I would like for you to come to a banquet tomorrow, you and Haman. And they're excited about it. So this is where we pick up in chapter five, verse nine. That day, Haman left full of joy and in good spirits. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate and Mordecai didn't rise or tremble in fear at him, or his presence, Haman was filled with rage towards Mordecai. Yet Haman controlled himself and went home. He sent for his friends and his wife Zeresh to join him. Then Haman described for them his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them all how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. What's more, Haman added, Queen Esther invited no one but me to join the king at the banquet she had prepared. I'm invited again tomorrow to join with her at the king. Still, none of this satisfies me since I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate all the time. His wife Zeresh and all his friends told him, have them build a gallows 75 feet tall. Ask the king in the morning to hang Mordecai on it. Then go to the banquet with the king and enjoy yourself. 
the advice pleased Haman, so he had the gallows constructed. Haman has already enjoyed one party. And the queen says, hey, I want to do this again tomorrow. And Haman's like, man, (laughs) I have arrived. The queen is throwing special parties for no one more than me and the king. I'm invited to come back a second time. Like, I'm living the life. Like, this guy has everything he could dream of. And so he's leaving the party and he's going home to his family. And on the way, he passes Mordecai the Jew that inspired him to try to orchestrate this massive genocide that is still calendared. It's still going to be happening. And as he passes this Mordecai, Mordecai will not bow again. And so he goes from, I've got everything. I am second in command. There is no one except the king who has more power, wealth, or anything else. And yet, here's that one Jew who won't bow to me. And so he goes home, and he's angry. So he starts off by bragging. He's bragging about his great wealth. I'm sorry, there may be a kid back here. Can somebody check? (laughs) So... <laughs> I'm so sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it would be my son. <laughs> so there's the no kid. Okay. Does anyone else say I am deaf in this year? Okay. I just didn't want somebody's child like. <laughs> but all right. <laughs> I'm so sorry. So. While, while this is happening, he's bragging about his immense wealth, how he has been invited to this party with the king. Like, the queen has invited me and the king to another party. And then he's like, but here's the thing. There's this guy, this Mordecai guy. He, he just will not bow. And so you may be thinking, and, and I, I tend to think this upon the first reading, is like, how absurd. You have that much power, that much influence, that much wealth but because one guy, one guy in all the kingdom won't bow to you, you're that caught up on it that you can't have a good time? You can't go and enjoy tomorrow's party because of one guy? Really? This one guy is inciting that much insecurity. He loved to show off, and yet the one thing robbing him of success and happiness was Mordecai, a single solitary Jew who will not bow to him. He has already been so elevated in his own eyes and in the eyes of the other people that now what convinces him is going to be the remedy is let's build a gallows, a thing, a device to hang this guy publicly 75 feet tall. We will elevate him this much and show the world what happens to those who do not honor me. So this is their plan. And so I have to ask, and this is so cutting to me, our appearances and obvious circumstances in our life that much of a tyrant over us. There can be one thing that's not what I want it to be, and it can affect everything else. I mean, how irrational can we be? If you've done couples counseling with me, you've probably heard me say this, but it so breaks my heart because I watch it in my own home. You can have one day with a fight, and it's bad, but that one day with a fight can make it seem like all of our marriage is awful. Like, one day out of the month, you fought. And somehow that one day can paint the picture of everything. We have to remember, like, get, get perspective. But here's this guy 
who, accepting the king, has unrivaled wealth and power, influence. Yet because one guy won't honor him, oh, just can't handle it. I can't take it. It's insecurity. I was invited on a fishing trip um, with a group of pastors a few months ago, and, and I love fishing. And so we're, we're invited out, and it was super generous of them to put this together. And so it's me with a couple pastors I know and then a, a group of other guys that I had never met before. And so um, I've told you this before, but I, I, I know you haven't caught on, but I'm a wee little man. I'm not the biggest guy in the room usually. And so I'm the smallest guy by far on this fishing trip. And so we're on this boat. We're way out in the Atlantic Ocean, and we're catching fish and all this stuff. And, um, and there comes a point where I hook up with what ultimately is a 42-pound grouper. So it's a nice-sized fish. And it's 280 feet deep. So um, it's going to be a long fight. I'm, I'm here with this reel and everything. Um, but here's the thing. I've always been a smaller guy, and so I've fished my whole life. And so I learned at a very young age on my dad's boat that the way that this works for me, and just kind of my MO, what I do is if I hook up with a big fish, then I will just kind of come up to the gunwale, to, to the, the side of the boat, and I'll just put my knees against it, and that kind of locks me in. And that's just what I do. I'll come up to the edge, let my knees touch that. I know, I know where I am now, and now I'm going to fight with everything I have. And so... I hook up with this fish. It's obviously the biggest fish of the day so far and was ultimately as well. Just throw that in there because I'm not, I'm not concerned, you know? But as I hook up with this fish, I do what I instinctively do. I'm back a little from the edge and hook up, realize it's a big fish. And so I start to come forward and so I feel my knees like that. You know what happens immediately after that? Three guys jump on me. <laughs> like one of them grabs the front of the rod, Two of them are like grabbing me. Like, man, I thought you were going over. <laughs> you know, I hated every moment of that. <laughs> Catching a big fish, the biggest fish of the day. But I just couldn't get over the fact that these guys thought I was going over. <laughs> I'm like, you're ruining this. You're ruining, get off of me. Like, I don't want your help. If you haven't noticed, like I'm still insecure about that. <laughs> And so we can read about Mordecai. Like, do you have insecurities? Like, it matters so much what other people think of us. And here's this Mordecai guy, and I think I actually can relate so much that one thing can be off, and suddenly that paints the world for me. But here's this guy, so enslaved by his own arrogance and pride that he can be second in the kingdom and can't enjoy any of the kingdom because of one guy who won't bow to him. And so here's what happens. Chapter six. Remember the plan is in place. We've built gallows. We're gonna hang Mordecai 75 feet in the air. Let the world see. You won't bow to me. I'll exalt you in this way. Chapter six, verse one. That night, sleep escaped the king. So he ordered the book recording daily events to be brought and read to the king. They found the written report of how Mordecai had informed on Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the entrance when they planned to assassinate King Ahasuerus. The king inquired, what honor and special recognition has been given to Mordecai for this act? The king's personal attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. Now do you think it is a coincidence that he could not sleep and happened to read that day's events? I think not. I, I will not chalk that up to coincidence. Verse 4. The king asked, who is in the court? Apparently someone else can't sleep that night. Now Haman was just entering the outer court of the palace to ask the king to hang Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. 
The king's attendants answered him, Haman is there standing in the court. Have him enter, the king ordered. Haman entered. And the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? Haman thought to himself, who is it the king would want to honor more than me? Haman told the king, for the king the man wants to honor, have them bring a royal garment that the king himself has worn and a horse the king himself has ridden, which has a royal crown on its head. Put the garment and the horse under the charge of one of the king's most noble officials. Have them clothe the man the king wants to honor. Parade him on the horse through the city square and proclaim before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Ha. Coincidence that the king could not sleep and happened to read that and realized nothing's been done for Mordecai. He saved my life. Now, coincidence that Haman also for very different reasons, could not sleep, so obsessed with the one man who would not bow to him that he is in the court waiting. I gotta get my audience with the king because I have a plan. I'm gonna ask him to kill this man who will not honor me. The man that you just spent your night reading about that saved your life and now you want to honor. And so the king asks, who am I gonna honor? And he's like, it's gotta be me. <laughs> who else would the king want to honor more than me? It's gotta be me. And so he comes up with this lofty plan. You're going to wear clothes that the king has worn. You're going to ride a horse the king has ridden. The, the horse is going to have a crown. And another nobleman is going to follow around parading this guy through the city, screaming, hey, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. And all the while, Haman's thinking, that's going to be me. I get to pick my own gift here. This is beautiful. <laughs> this is awesome. Oh, look at verse 10. The king told Haman, Hurry and do just as you proposed. Take a garment and a horse for Mordecai the Jew who is sitting at the king's gate. Do not leave out anything you have suggested. Oh, oh what a turn. Haman is humiliated as he realizes the plan is not for him, but for the one guy in the world that he hates most. The one guy who is ruining his world is now the guy who gets to enjoy the plan he put together for himself. <laughs> is that a coincidence? No, cannot be. Verse 11. So Haman took the garment and the horse. He clothed Mordecai and paraded him through the city square, crying out before him, this is what is done for the man the king wants to honor. Because after all, he, he, is, he is the apex of noblemen. He's second in command. And now he gets to do this. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off for home, mournful and with his head covered. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, since Mordecai is Jewish and you have begun to fall before him, you won't overcome him because your downfall is certain. While they were still speaking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. So you remember, this is day two of the parties, right? You have places to go. I know you've spent the morning parading the Jew around, but you got things to do here. You gotta, you gotta come back to this party that Esther threw. I said, oh, a bit, I was like, oh, like, okay, back, in, back into, I'm a nobleman. I've got this. He's not above me. I just had to humiliate myself, but here we go. I am invited back to be with the king and queen alone for their party. Put yourself together, but what a turn. How shameful. And now even his friends and wife have assured him, you're doomed. <laughs> oh, man, if your wife tells you you're doomed, 
That's one of those days out of the 30, you know? All right. Look at verse 6. Oh, I'm sorry. We're, we're verse 1, chapter 7. The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Once again, on the second day while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom will be done. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your eyes, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life. This is my request. And spare my people. This is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and extermination. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, Who is this? And where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Mm. This is Esther's moment to reveal her real request. She's not looking to just throw parties to entertain the king. And he knew that. Hey, queen, what, what is it that you want? Even up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. What do you want? And she looks the king in his eyes and says, my life and my people. We have been sold to destruction. Someone has plotted against us to kill all of us. And the king is furious. Who? Say the name. Who would do that to my bride, to my queen? Who would devise such a scheme as this? Tell me the name. Who is it? And now you have to remember, there's only one other guy in the room. <laughs> and what is he doing in this moment? Head down a little looking up. Back and forth. With his wife's words ringing in his ears, you're doomed. <laughs> oh. Okay, verse six. Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. And I just have to imagine her finger came out. <laughs> <laughs> Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. The king arose in anger and went from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Like, you know, it's bad when the guy has to leave the room, right? Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harbona, one of the king's eunuchs said, there is a gallows 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai who gave the report that saved the king. The king said, hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. So many ironic reversals. That everything that he would plan would be completely reversed and come back on himself. So many. The enemy of God's people is now brought to utter destruction. Do you see it? Do you see how God is all over this story? Even if he is not named, you cannot escape the fact that God is all over this story. And so it really comes down to this. Our sovereign God is Lord of great reversals. Our sovereign God is Lord of great reversals. And that is true for you today. It is true for everything that we encounter in life, that he has the power to change things. And we have to submit to his power, to his plan. I want you to actually look at this. So will you turn to Colossians chapter 2? Colossians chapter 2, 
Again, verse 13 with me. Colossians chapter two, verse 13 through 15, it says, and when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. When did he do that? This is our salvation. This is our salvation. When you were dead in trespasses, dead in sin, when you were dead, you cannot do anything for yourself when you were dead. When you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. When did God make you alive? When you were dead. When did God forgive you? When you were dead. What could you do to earn that? Nothing, you were dead. What is the trajectory of dead men? Death. And yet God steps in with a great reversal. Says, when you were dead, I'll make you alive. You were dead in sin. All that sin, I'll forgive it. I've forgiven it. And when you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, everything that stood against us was nailed there. It was paid for in full. Has God performed this great reversal for us to bring us from death to life and everything that stood against us, all of our debt, he took on himself. He did that for us when we could do nothing for ourselves. And then now watch what it says. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Like Haman, plotting to take care of the one person who would not honor him and is bringing shame in his life. And so I'll bring shame to all the Jews. I'll kill them all so that this one man cannot stand defiantly in opposition to me. And God sovereignly orchestrates a great reversal to where this one man would be hanged on the gallows he erected for the one man who stood against him. And the Jews would be spared. The story goes on that Esther is able to talk with the king and the king completely eradicates that order. And in fact, it is so great a reversal that on that day, instead of the Jews being annihilated, the Jews were given freedom to destroy their enemies. What? What a great reversal. But on the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly when it looked like Jesus was being disgraced publicly. And he was. It was actually him conquering all of it, triumphing over all of the enemies, that it would be victory for us, it would be victory for him, that he would be glorified and we would be brought to life with him. We rightfully were dead and we were destined for destruction, but he died so that we might live with and enjoy him forever. We rightfully were full of shame, but he took our shame. And like the opening of that concert, so full of worship for me, because I could not deny that God is really here and everything is going according to his plan even when it looks like everything is going against his plan he's still sovereign where I'm swept up in motion there's a crowd unwittingly giving praise to the God they so want to mock 
And the same thing happened at the cross. As Jesus is mocked, they spit on him. They ripped his beard from his face. They sunk a crown of thorns in his head and put purple on him and said, now you look like a king. They put a sign over his head on the cross that said, King of the Jews, trying their absolute best to mock him. And people jeered at him. Saved others, can't save yourself. And how many people that day walked by because they did this in the most public places imaginable and thought, what a shame. And yet on that cross, he said, I'm taking your shame. I'll bear it all. So that you won't have to. And I'll die this death that you deserve so that you could live and have everlasting life with me forever. So would you turn from your sin and see there is only one who is sinless. His name is Jesus. He lived a sinless life and he died the death that we deserve to die. He was put on a cross where the record of debt that stood against us, all of our sin, was nailed to the cross. Jesus, namely, was nailed to the cross. And he did that for you so that there would be this great reversal when it looks like everything is going against the plan of God. God says, no, this is my plan. This is the plan and this was the plan all along that I would show you I love you this much, that I would die for you. So now will you turn from your sin and turn to me and trust me to be your salvation? confess he is Lord over all. He has proven it over and over and over. He is Lord. He is majestic. He's glorious. See him lifted high. Raise your hands to him. Give him your life because he gave you his life so that you can live forever with him. He is glorious. This is the gospel. Satan and all that stood opposed to God thought they won in the murder of Jesus, but it was in that horrific death that he actually triumphed over it all. So the climax of the book of Esther is full of these splendidly ironic reversals. The fullness of these moments just flood into the seeming absence of the name of God and we wonder where is God and yet these things happen over and over and over and we say, he's right there. He's right there. And so can you look in your life and say, it seems like he's gone. But take a step back. Maybe take your eyes off of Haman for a moment. Whoever Haman is for you. Maybe it's yourself. Stop looking in the mirror or that black screen that we're so addicted to and realize there's a gracious God who loves you. God's ever-present divine providence is here in such a way that you don't even have to mention the name of God and know he's present and nothing can stand against him. It's a fun story to read. But as we conclude, I have to ask, can you live in it? Can I live in it? It's so fun to read that and watch how things twist and turn. And like, oh, it's so good. I love the ending. But we live in it. We live in the tension of not knowing, is God actually here? Is he actually working out everything according to his purpose? Esther risked her life not knowing what the outcome would be. When she entered that room without the invitation of the king, she risked her life. She had no idea what would happen. He could have been in a bad mood or even a good mood and just decided, no, not today, woman. That's how it worked in that day. But she took the risk, not knowing what the outcome would be. 
But she didn't do that blindly. She fasted, implying that she was petitioning God for his provision. She still did not know what would happen. And so I have to ask, are you stuck in something? Mentally, emotionally, physically, vocationally, are you stuck? Sad, I don't know what to do. Are you making a decision? And you don't know how to make that decision. And this is what you do. You fast. You create an intentional hunger in your life and acknowledge that only God can satisfy that. You seek God. You seek his kingdom, his righteousness first. And then Jesus said, everything giving you anxiety will be added to you. Seek first this. And that does not mean life will be without tension. She still went to that room not knowing what the outcome would be. But she did it in faith. She moved forward. So seek godly counsel, pray, fast, and then act in faith and trust in yourself to our sovereign God. So let's move. And live in the tension. It's okay to live in the tension because this is not the end. It's summertime. It's my favorite season of the year. I just could not do it up north where it's darker and colder. I'm not strong enough for that. But in the summer, I love it. I go on vacation, and, and any of you that know me at all know that I love the ocean. We go to the Florida Keys, and I, I often refer to the Keys as my happy place. Like, all year long, I'm just waiting to go back to the Keys. Just, you get that time there, let's go catch some fish, catch some lobster, like, just so much fun. I love it. I look forward to it all year long. And I got to go there. And you know what happened while I was there? I still got sad. I still had things that disappointed me. I still had moments where I thought, is it worth it? I still had conflict in my family. I still had moments where I'm like, why would you do that? And then I had moments where I had to look back in the mirror and say, why would you do that? That can be depressing and, and discouraging and disappointing and all these other things. And it just hit me like, even the best is lacking. And it ends. We had to come home. I love you, but we had to come home. (laughs) It ends. And all of that can be true. And we can be okay because this is not the end. You have to look forward. I have to look forward and know this is not home. (laughs) Christian, your current circumstances are not final so you can live in the moments like Esther of not knowing what's about to happen. And live through it because this is not the end. In other words, the language of scripture, we must keep our eyes on things that are above. As Paul said to the church in Colossae a little bit later after what you read, he says, so if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. We look above and see Christ who then makes us look back and see a cross that is proof of God's love for us, glory and love revealed to us. And we look above again and we see Christ and he causes us to look forward and we see Christ coming again in glory and says, welcome into this glory. Live with me forever. Because this is not the end. So, beloved, we can live here in this tension, in these moments where we may wonder, where is God? And press on joyfully and know he's here. And this is not the end, so it should not fully satisfy. But I know the day is coming when I will be fully satisfied. I will be with him. I will see him face to face. 
Your faith glorifies God. So revel and hope in his strength, his promises, his providence. Skeptic, you don't know if you believe this? Doubting saint? I don't know. Stumbling saint? Seeker, you want to know what's true? I want to ask you in this moment, will you believe it? That God loves you like that? I'm a Christian. You believe this? Follower of Jesus? Hold fast to it. And who do you need to share it with? Pray with me. God, thank you that you do love us in this way. Thank you that we can live in the tension like Esther of not knowing what the outcome will be on this earth, but knowing that beyond this, we have the immeasurable riches of heaven that are ours in Christ. We have you, God. Spirit, would you remind us daily of your presence and may we ever seek after you to know you, to walk with you, to enjoy you all of our life and forever. I thank you for this story. And God, as we, as we move out of this series, I, I pray that, that you would just deeply impress on us the comfort of your sovereignty, of your providence, that you provide. You are faithful, even when we are not. Bless this church. We are yours, and you are ours. We love you. And I pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.